I was happy when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Amen. I hope you are well. Though you may be tired, though you may have wanted to stay snuggled up in bed this morning when the rain came through. I don't know, did the rain come through here? It was like thunderstorming up in Memphis where we live early this morning at six or so. And I just thought, oh, how nice is this? Natalie and I were, Georgia is sleeping wonderfully through the night, so I can brag on that. But we still were up till like 2.30 in the morning last night just looking at pictures of her from the day she was born all the way until now. So four months worth of pictures just up laughing and enjoying that. Children, you're dismissed with Thomas and Jonathan's been helping back there. Wonderful. So many wonderful things happening. So many children in the house. Isn't it awesome? I think there are four or five infants this morning, newborns, that are at least, oh, I know ours will be four months in, a, in, about, in a couple days, so under four months old. It's wonderful. It's good to have new life. It just changes everything when you bring a baby into the room, doesn't it? Everyone just gravitates and faces light up and smile. It's good. Apostle Clay and Susan are, I spoke to them this morning. I said, I said, are you preaching somewhere this morning? Where where are you preaching at? He said, I'm preaching to myself this morning. He said, I'm relaxing. They're up at the ark. They're going to have some family over, I don't know if it's 4th of July weekend or, or what, but he's taking a few days up there. So we just... Keep them in our prayers and that the Lord would refresh them and turn them around quick and allow them to do the ministry of the Lord and the work of the Lord across the Mid-South effectively and efficiently. Amen. Amen. Good. Well, I'm Matt. For those of you that might not know, I think everyone probably knows. I'm over the worship and media here and I get to teach this morning. I have the honor and privilege of ministering, yeah, with you guys, and thank you to Natalie and the team that led us this morning. Wonderful presence of the Lord in this place. I want to thank all the leadership in this house. Such a unique experience to be here at CityGate. I'm just telling you, uh, you're not going to find this level of freedom, anticipation, and just spirit-led, truly, with the spontaneous and the listening to the, to the Lord in the moment uh, kind of worship and ministry and prophetic uh, ministry that you see here. It's a wonderful thing. Um, very similar at Firestarters on Sunday nights that we enjoy being there a couple times a month. But it's just a wonderful time to be able to gather together and just really let the Lord lead us, uh, even in a service like this that should be, you know, structured for the equipping of the saints, yet we just kind of free flow and do what God does. Amen? So, this morning, I want to speak on the image of God learning about God's identity and learning about man's identity. And understanding the image of God is all wrapped up in that because we're made in his image. And if we're made in his image and in his likeness, then we carry elements of his character, his authority, and his nature. Amen? So open with me this morning in your Bibles to Genesis Chapter 1, page 1 of the Bible. There's a little bit of a ring here. I don't know if you can hear it, Nate. Just pull the gain down a little bit. Let's open in our Bibles to page 1. At the very beginning. And let's go to the Lord in prayer as we receive his ministry through the word. Heavenly Father, Abba. Yahweh, Elohim, we come before you this morning, boldly before your throne, in your presence, knowing that you made a way for us through Yeshua HaMashiach, 
Jesus Christ, Messiah. And we're thankful for that. And we bless you for that. And we give you praise and honor and glory this morning. And in this moment, Father, we open our hearts even wider, open our hearts to your word and the things that you want to teach us this morning, the things that you want to equip us with in order to cause us to go out and be effective kingdom people carrying Christ everywhere we go. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that the direction this morning that we have been going in is obviously only going to just be furthered with what I have brought in the form of message or preaching or teaching. I think that some of the things that we talked about this morning about letting dead things be dropped off and let go of and letting some new life and growing in that new life, I do believe that I was sensing this morning that some of the concepts brought to the table this morning in the teaching are going to help with that new life process. So let's go to Genesis 1 and start at the very beginning. We are going to read this morning the entire chapter of Genesis 1. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. And it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the waters under the vault from the water above, and it was so. God created the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning on the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered, and, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plant bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God said that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. I have a question. It says in verse 19 that there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. Isn't that interesting? He already created light and separated the light from the darkness, but now in verse 14 to 19 we see that he puts the sun and the moon and the in the stars up and then creates evening and morning on the fourth day. How do you create evening and morning on day four? Was there not evening and morning before? There was already lights before. There was, he already created light and separated light from darkness. I don't know, maybe I'm just a nerd and I think about this stuff. So the cosmos are established on the fourth day. Interesting. So I just find it interesting that he's, what kind of light governed the first three days. Interesting. Amen. His glory. He separated light from darkness for how many days? Three days. <laughs> wow. Ooh. 
Verse 20. We're not preaching on that today. (laughs) And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teem that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning on the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals each according to its kinds. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all of the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that comes on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That's Genesis 1. Isn't that beautiful? It's like poetry. It's absolutely beautiful. Genesis 26 and 27 speak to our ontology, our beginning. It means that we have a beginning point. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I think that the scriptures are trying to tell us that God made us. So as we unfold this package in Genesis 1, I want to speak to what we know about God from the very first verse of the scriptures. What do we know about him? He, it was, he, was, he was there in the beginning. What do we know? What else do we know about, about him? He's creative. Okay, that's good. Not just that he created, but he's creative. Say again something from right here. He's full of light. Light. That's good. Let's look at verse, verse 1. says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, this is like Bible 101. It's like, this is good, right? Just starting from the very beginning. Let's look at in the beginning, God. Well, before we even go to God, we have to stop at in the beginning because we have to know that in the beginning means that God does not have a beginning, for he exists outside of time and space and matter. He's eternal. He existed before creation, and he exists after. He's he's all-encompassing. He's completely eternal, which means that he has no beginning point. We understand this, right? Basic concepts of our Christian faith, our doctrine of understanding God, is that he is eternal, He exists outside of time and space and matter. Therefore, he's not limited by time, space, and matter. Time, space, and matter all had to come into existence at the same time. Because if you have time and space, where would you put it? Or if you have space and matter, when would you put it? Right? So all all three of these elements have to come into existence at the very same moment. It's a trinity of trinities. Time has past, present, and future, space has, uh, I'm trying to remember all the features, the length, width, height is matter, space is, I can't remember, but there's all these trinity of trinities is what they call it in 
in creation science, the things that God created. It's a beautiful thing. And so I found it significant that on the fourth day, he separated the evening from the morning. And the first three days are beaming with God's glory on the earth. Isn't that neat? Let's look, go a little bit further. So God is eternal because in the beginning, he was already there. In the beginning, God. Okay, let's stop right there. God, Elohim, the word for God in the Hebrew. Him being the plural form of God. In the beginning, God's God, plural. God exists some, that's our first hint. It's not, it's not proof that God is a Trinitarian God. It's, it doesn't say he's three in one in this, but it's a seed. It's a, it's a, it's a proto something. Uh, it's, it's, it's a hint because all throughout the scriptures we then discover and especially in the New Testament and Romans and Hebrews, we see this Trinity concept blowing up. But here we have a seed of understanding God in the plural form, Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Let's stop there. So he's creative, someone said. He is now a creator. The ultimate designer, the one who brings time, space, and matter into existence. Ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. He didn't use any pre-existing materials. He just breathed and it was created. He just creates life. So we know that he exists eternally, that he is Elohim, God in the plural form there in Hebrew, and then that he is creator. Let's move on a little bit more. Before, I find this interesting. When we look further in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where he creates man, he says, let us create man in our image, right? We've got another seed being sown there of the Trinitarian God that we worship. I promise I'll get to this image thing eventually. But in, in the beginning, in the first verse, it says Elohim, and then in 26, we see that God says, let us make man in our image. So we're being painted a picture already. Before we discover that God is creator, or, you know, he's always creator because he's eternal, and this concept of his eternity is really beyond our grasp to comprehend a lot of times. So he's always savior, and he's always creator, and he's always good, and he's always faithful. But in our finite understanding, before we discover that he is creator, before we discover that he's faithful redeemer, healer, savior, etc., before we discover those things, we see God existing in community. I believe I've preached this before here. We see God existing as family because we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in the beginning. So before we know God as creator, sustainer, provider, faithful, lover, etc., we see him as father first. We see him as someone who loves the son. We see a family in the beginning before all these other concepts. And so it's important for us to view God as father. I can't get that out of my head, out of my heart, out of my spirit. I just can't. It's so good that he is first a father and always eternally before creation was a father, existing as father and son. And we can relate to him now as father God because he was always that. And through Christ's imputed righteousness to us, we become sons of God. Amen? And he becomes our father again. What was broken in the garden is now fixed through Christ. He made a way for us. Let's look at Genesis 1.26. He creates mankind in his image, in the image of family. He creates mankind in his image. How do we know this, that God created mankind in somehow because God is intrinsically relational he puts that image into mankind when he 
breathes the breath of life into mankind. I also find it interesting. He makes everything in creation according to its kind until he gets to man, until he gets to humanity, and he creates humanity in the image of God, in the image of himself. Everything that God created was good. So how do we know? The, the question is, how do we know that God intrinsically, he, he puts himself, his likeness, his, his, uh, this idea of family, this identity of community into mankind? How do we know this? Because everything that God created in the beginning was good, right? He saw that it was good. He said that it was good. And the first thing that God, we see God saying is not good, what is it? For man to be alone. Genesis 2 and 18. It says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so then he gives man like the animals and somehow directs the animals to man. Some kind of fellowship there. And then after another verse or two later, he says, it still wasn't sufficient. And so then he makes woman out of man. The first thing that God said was not good in the garden was that was man being alone. So God creates man and he says, eh, he's a little tweaking. Even in, even in man's perfect condition, even in man's perfect nature, uh, perfect obedience, he's naming the animals, he's, he's, he's gardening. Uh, you know, for you guys that think that's not, not super cool, it's not like, man, like, you know, I need guns, I need to shoot something, I need... Pizza and beers and football, right? Well, God creates Adam and he says, go garden the earth. <laughs> so man is cultivating the earth. He's got these some kind of fellowship or some kind of engagement with the animals. And then God says, it's still, uh, it still needs some tweaking. So then he, create, he puts man into a deep sleep and brings woman out of man. And he says, ah, okay, okay, this is good. This is good. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife for them to become one flesh. That's what he says right after he creates man and woman, and they have union in the garden. And it also says, Adam and his wife were both naked. Yes, there's nudity in the Bible. Very graphic. They felt no shame. That's good. I want to talk about the Hebrew understanding of man and woman. It's good for us to look at the scriptures and, and read it in our tongue and in our language and, and deduct some things, but we wouldn't have been able to deduct Elohim being plural unless we look at the language. Uh, we can see that God said, let us make man in our image, but let's look at the way that the Hebrew people saw Yahweh and also saw man and woman because this will tell us a lot about God. Can you put that first one up there, Victoria? Is she? Is she gone? It should, there should be one in the playlist at the very top, Steve. It says, see if I can show you guys this, because it would be hard for me to explain it. Yes! Everyone give Steve a hand. Woo! All right, so Hebrew... Yay, it's so fun. Just like figures. Of... All right, let's look at it. This word for man is ish. The word for woman is ish-ah. The word for Lord is yah. And they're composed of certain characters, letters from the Hebrew language. The way that they compose the word man is with the character Sheen, Yod, and Aleph. And then woman is Sheen, Aleph, and then He. The name for Yah, Lord, is He and Yod. If you're, you're probably catching on to something here pretty quickly. Yes. Oh, I'm sure I am. Forgive me. Have grace on me, Master Chuck. <laughs> So, you want me to redo it? <laughs> okay. You see, the Hebrew people were very intentional 
about the way that they used their words, the way that they used their numbers. There's also numbers for each of these letters and then numbers for words as well. So they were very intentional about the way that they designed their language. This is the language of God's people. So if you see, we won't get into all that. That's very fascinating about what Aleph, Sheen, and Yod mean. But we see that both Sheen and Aleph are in man and woman. And we see that part of Yah, which is a, a, basically a, just a boiled down term for Adonai, Yahweh, we see that part of hey, uh, Lord, hey and Yod, is in both man and woman. And we also see that if we were to take Yod, and, well, we don't see it in this image, but if you were to take hey and Yod out of man and woman, you're left with what? Sheen and Aleph. It act, sheen and Aleph together means fire. I find that very interesting. Some people would say that let me see if I can if I have a document here or something. Yod is a letter of masculinity, order, and logic. Hey is a letter of femininity, grace, and wisdom. They're both in Yahweh, but they're not both in one or the other of male and female. When masculinity, Yod, is removed from man, the resulting Hebrew word is fire, ish, which is aleph and sheen together. I don't want to dive too deep into this, but ultimately, if, we're, if we take God, the letters for God, out of man and woman, we're messing with fire at that point, playing with fire. Interesting concepts, the way that the Hebrew people... Now, this speaks to our identity as well as it speaks to God's identity, is that God, the perfect image of God, is not in man, and it's not in woman. It's in man and woman together. And that is an indicator of God's identity, that he's neither man alone or female alone, but both together and creates both of them out of himself. And also that man and woman united is a perfect picture of the way that God intended. It speaks to marriage. It speaks to um, concepts of homosexuality and immorality and things like that that we have uh, rampant in our society and always have. If you read anything about the backdrop of Corinthians or the Greek culture or the ancient people, I mean, it's, we've always had problems with sexuality. We've always had problems with immorality, idolatry. And the Hebrew language here is telling us man and woman together is God's perfect picture. We have some other concepts here. Uh, a man or woman is incomplete in the image of Elohim when they do not have each other. Therefore, marriage is a fundamental precept of the creation and the life to come because we know that the Bible is one big marriage story, one big wedding story, right? <laughs> the marriage in the garden at the beginning and the feast, the wedding feast at the end, right? We see this marriage theme of man and woman giving us a picture of God. God intends both man and woman together to be a perfect picture of his character, his authority, and his nature. He is in both, but not exclusively in one or the other. Now, how does man function in his image on the earth? And this is what I really want to get to this morning. How does man function in his image, in, in, in God's image, but in his image that God gave to him in the earth. I wonder, I'll read this to you. It'll be lengthy a little bit, so buckle in. It'll be a couple minutes of reading this. Uh, this is kind of an amalgamation of some concepts that I've put together and some also resources I've used from some folks at the Bible Project. Here we go. It says, if you lived in ancient biblical times, odds are that you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings would claim that they were gods. They would even call themselves the image of God, meaning they had the authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. They got to define good and evil. And these things would often make statues of themselves, which in the Hebrew was called selim. 
often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they did not view their kings as gods. In fact, they were never even supposed to make images of God. And that was really unique for that time and that culture. This was rooted in Israel's belief that you cannot reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. Because he exists outside of time and space and matter, you can't create something that represents him using time, space, or matter. In Genesis, God gives hu humans... Oh, let me, let me skip over here. There's, there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. Well, when did he do that? Let's go to, the page, let's go to page one in our Bibles, right? And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. He defines what is good and what is not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then su surprisingly, as the pinnacle of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls them all the images of God. Interesting, isn't it? And so he gives all humans the authority to rule in the garden and even lets the humans, uh, and even allows the humans to, commands them to subdue the earth and to rule over it. And so this task that once only belonged to elite kings is here in the Bible, the task of every human being. This was revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and participate in the human project. In Genesis, God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good? Or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they decide to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition, our sinful nature, Adam and Eve's decision, right? The image of God in the Bible that we're given shows that ruling over the earth means to cultivate it harness its raw potential, and move creation forward. In this way, the task that God gave mankind to act in his image and rule over the earth becomes much like day-to-day -day activities that mankind has been doing for thousands of years. Unfortunately, just as often as people are good rulers and stewards of the earth, we're terrible ones who spread sin and suffering. Unfortunately, because of sinful nature and the human condition after the fall, we are stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he showed us what it was to truly rule as a human. You see, Jesus ruled by serving, by serving, by seeking the best in others, by putting himself underneath them, by washing their feet and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. That's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, but Jesus confr confronted the consequences of all the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling, and he takes it. I mean, he takes it. He lets it kill him. Jesus is the new way to be human. So practically, the Apostle, the apostle Paul said that it looks like people being filled with Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. God says that this is the new humanity that he wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being now restored. And this is actually how the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is sitting on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over the new world, taking it to new uncharted territories with Jesus as their healer and their God. That's a lot of jam-packed good stuff. It's our understanding of humanity and sin. It's our understanding of Jesus and his salvation. And it's our understanding of what, what happened in the beginning. We were united with, Jesus, with God in the beginning. We lived in perfect harmony in the garden with him. That was humanity. That's how God intended it to be. And through our sin and our brokenness, we ended up ruling over the earth 
in a very messed up way. But now God says, I'm going to bind myself to humanity and teach them what it really is to rule over the earth. And to give you some history, the people of God, Israel, they were prophesying, the prophets were prophesying a king that would come. There was going to be one who would come and save his people and redeem his people. This is being prophesied. And all the minor prophets, the major prophets, there's going to be one who's going to come and he's going to set his people free. Because the Israelite people at this point are in bondage, Babylonian captivity. Uh, they're in Assyrian captivity. Uh, they're being split, Judah and Israel. And there is all this division happening. And so the prophets are prophesying that God is going to send an anointed one, a Messiah, to save his people. And so the people of God are anticipating a conquering king to come and save them. Yeah, that's how we're going to, he's going to rule over our enemies. Because it prophesied, he's going to make your enemies your footstool. And so they're waiting for this king to, with his scepter and his sword, and kick his feet up and squash out the enemies, squash out the Assyrians, squash out the Babylonians. Now he's got to squash out the Greeks, because now the Greeks are in power. 400 years, uh, try to think. Uh, Greeks came into power 333 BC, and so now the Greeks and Hellenism is being established, and there's now Greek oppression over Israel and God's people, and they're still waiting. There's this year of silence, the years 400 years of silence that's happening, and God's people are waiting for this Messiah. And then the Romans come, and the Romans rule over God's people and and establish their ways and oppress them and. God's people are still waiting for this Messiah. Hey, yo, when's this dude going to come and take out these Romans? We need a ruler to come with his scepter and his sword and his big foot to squash out the Roman enemies. And then comes Mary and Joseph and Jesus, born not into royalty, but Jesus born in humility, in almost embarrassment, embarrassing conditions. And then he comes up and gets baptized and then starts his ministry. And he's supposed to be the one who saves God's people. And so his disciples, even John the Baptist, are, they're following him and they're listening to him. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, even John the Baptist says, here he is, baptizes him, this is the guy. But then, even during Jesus' ministry, they're all kind of going, all right, all right, when are you going to, like, do the Roman thing and knock them out and, like, establish your authority? Like, I know you're 30 and, like, you got a lot of years, so we got time, but... Like, when are you going to do this? And so even John the Baptist, when he's in prison, questions Jesus, like, are you sure this is the plan? Are you sure this is what's going to happen? Because, man, this is kind of messed up. This Roman thing is not working out, and we've been waiting. We've been prophesying. Dude, I've been prophesying. I went in the desert, and I ate locusts and honey, and I'm sick of it. You, you wouldn't believe how many bad locusts I had to eat. And, like, I said, all right, you're coming, and... Like, are you sure that this is the plan? Because you're kind of just like multiplying fish and loaves and like you've got crowds following you, but you're just telling them about like these beatitudes. Like we need you to rule and reign. Like they're waiting for the king to come. The Messiah is going to be there. But Jesus is too busy washing people's feet and saying, Hey, children, come to me. I can't say that right now because all the children, Thomas took all my children out of service. <laughs> Jesus is like, hey, bring the children to me. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. This guy's, he's important. He's going to be a ruler. And so now you've got Jesus displaying God's plan. And it's not like anything we looked like, we, we thought it would look like. It's not like anything the Israel people thought it would look like. It's not even anything his own disciples 
and people like John the Baptist, his own cousin, paving the way, saying, here he comes. It's like, all right, he's here, but like, I don't know. So it doesn't look the way it's supposed to look. We need a conquering king. And then we reach the week of his crucifixion. And his disciples are scattered. And they're scared. They're like, they just, they just crucified bro. Like, what? This is so messed up. So Peter's denying him. Everyone's hiding because they're looking. Hey, you're the one that followed him. The Jews hated Jesus and still do, if you don't know. They do not like the message of Jesus. It's heresy to the Jewish people. That's why there's a separation between Messianic Jews and regular Jews. Because the Jews are still waiting for a ruler to come and set them free. And so we have this picture of God in Jesus, the perfect picture of God, but also the perfect picture of humanity in the form of Jesus, humbling, serving, getting down in the dirt with the woman caught in adultery and writing in the ground. Something, I don't know what he wrote. Names, maybe? Sins? Maybe. Maybe just wrote like silly pictures or something and made him mad. And then he gets on the ground and washes people's feet. Then he reclines at the table. You know, they laid down when they ate. I mean, he's like getting down as low as he can. And this is the picture, this is the image of God that we see in the form of Jesus total humility, total service, total sacrifice. To the next person. Total surrender. Jesus is the one that we worship, but he's also the one who's the perfect picture of a worshiper. Jesus worshiped the Father not because he got saved. You ever think about that? A lot of times we pray because we need God because we're broken, right? But Jesus wasn't broken, he still needed God. He still prayed. A lot of times we worship God. You're my savior. You restored me. We talked about it this morning. Like you picked me up from the miry clay. Like I was once lost in my sin and you saved me. But Jesus worships God, but not like that. Because he didn't have sin. He knew no sin. Yet he still attributes worship to the Father. He's the perfect picture of the model of the image of humanity and the image of God together. He attributes worship to the Father, but also receives our worship. And so we have this picture of Jesus, the image of God and the image of man, the way that we're supposed to live in total humility. And that's, guys, the image of both God and man together. The identity of the believer is Jesus and what he did and how he lived, and how he stooped as low as he could, as if getting on his knees to welcome children to sit on his lap wasn't enough. He laid down and reclined at the table with, his, with the dirty uh, disciples and fishermen and probably other carpenters and people that were just filthy from running around town. And then he gets in the ground and puts his hands and draws in the dirt. And he washes people's feet and he picks up mud and he spits in it, and he puts it on people's eyes. This is the Savior. This is the one whom we're supposed to adopt our, adapt our image to. This is Jesus. This is the Christ, the saving one. Yeshua, Hamashiach, the anointed one. Hamashiach means, in the Hebrew, to be smeared with oil as a sign of authority. This is Jesus. He was literally given all power, all authority was given to him. Yet this is how he lived. Humble. And at the same time, he calls us to walk in the authority that he carries. At the same time, 
he calls us to stand in the character and the authority and the nature of Yahweh. Amen? So there's this aspect of humility, and then there's this aspect of boldness, because he didn't just go to the grave, but he resurrected on the third day. And that is what establishes his power. And then he hangs out for a couple days, and he's like, hey, guys, it's me. I'm back. Check it out. And he's got all this authority now, and he's got this power. And so he teaches us to live humbly, and then he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives that to us. So we're supposed to take this idea of humility and this idea of authority and walk in both of them. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus, after he's hanging out with the, them for a few days, and before, before this, he says in John 14 and 15, he says, guys, I'm going to have to go. And they're like, no, 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 this is great. You're back. Like, I get it now. Now is when you're going to stop the Romans. <laughs> like, I get it. You're back from the dead, and we got this resurrected king, and you're going to set us free from all our oppression. And Jesus is like, no, guys, the, we do not, our, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities. It's against our flesh. It's against the enemy, not the Romans, but the devil, right? And so he's teaching them this new humanity that it's not about conquering nations and putting your foot over people. It's about conquering the true enemy, the sin, the flesh, the devil, etc., and so he says to them in John 14 and 15, both of those chapters are great. He says, guys, I got to go. And they're like, no, 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 don't go. This is great. We like this. And then he's like, guys, but you haven't seen nothing yet. Because I'm going to go. And then I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to be with you. And you are going to be able to do the things that I did, but even greater. So... I'm deucing out. Bye. Adios. So he leaves, and the Holy Spirit comes. So let me ask you this. Where is Jesus now? Is he in your heart? Okay, you said he's at the right hand of the Father. I thought he was in my heart. I thought I prayed a prayer. Okay, he's both places. But I... So Jesus is not in our hearts. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is within us, and the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of Jesus within us. So it's the spirit of Christ within us. We have to differentiate there because Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us as our mediator, the Holy Spirit is in us manifesting Jesus, or is he manifesting Jesus in you? I wonder. He should be. Are you filled with his fruit? Are you filled with the seed of the kingdom? Are you filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? I tell this to my students at the college all the time. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Name them right now. Well, if you don't know them, how are you going to get to them? <laughs> if you don't know the fruits of the Spirit, we're supposed to live by them. Are we living by the fruits of the Spirit? Now, you can probably not know the fruits of the Spirit and maybe be operating in them, but you should still know them, right? Educate yourself. So we're supposed to be living the manifested presence of Jesus here on the earth, functioning in humility, functioning in authority. That's the image of God in the believer. Humble strength. Stooping low, rising high. It's a paradox to us, but it's literally the image of God. He says, these people are not getting it right, so I'm going to show them myself. So he binds himself to humanity. Fully God, fully man. And shows them humility, but then shows them strength and shows them authority and shows us that we can serve one another and then also squash the devil. We can wash each other's feet and then the enemy's plan. We can pick up garbage for one another and buy groceries for each other and mourn and weep with those who weep. And then at the same time, we can take up our authority and say, this is not going to stand in my house. This is not going to happen in my family. So this image of God that I want to communicate to you guys is twofold with humility and authority, with meekness and boldness all at the same time. And we got to walk in it. 
That's the application. We got to walk in it. We got to take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> Teach me how to follow you. That should be our prayer. Teach me how to follow. And God's going like this. I showed you. I showed you. Read about Jesus. I showed you. So let's educate ourselves. Be resourceful. Figure out what Jesus did for people. Figure out what the scriptures say. Live by them. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Figure out what the scriptures say. Because in there, in the whole of the scriptures, is all tied up our identity in the way that we're supposed to live as humble, serving, meek people operating in God's authority and strength and righteousness. Amen? So let's stand and have a word of prayer. Dan, do you have anything? Yeah. We'll have Dan bless us out. <laughs> and bless you guys to go and be the presence of Jesus wherever you go, in humility and in strength, in meekness and in boldness. That's the image of God in us that he wants to establish. Lord, teach us, remind us, help us know what it is to function in humility and function in strength, to function in meekness and serve one another, but to also function in boldness. You created an image out of your own likeness and said, this is man, and it's good, and it's good that he is together with one another. And then we messed it up. And then you restored it. And you said, here is the Christ, Jesus, the one, the holy anointed one, Yeshua HaMashiach, smeared with anointing oil for authority to demonstrate to you what I really mean by being created in my image. So Father, teach us what that looks like on the daily. As we wake up and lie down, as we leave our homes, as we come back, as we raise our kids, as we go to work, as we go to the grocery store, or go to the gym, Father, teach us what it is to walk in your image with humility and with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.